There's a quote that's attributed to a fourth century Christian by the name of Augustine. It goes like this. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you do not like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. This quote has been expanded, modified in different ways, and I'm going to expand it right now and say something like, if you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it's not the Bible you believe. It's not God that you believe. It's yourself. Now, the reason why I would word it that way is because if you are the one that's choosing to accept and reject, then who's the one in control? You say, you, right? That's why uh, Augustine, or supposedly Augustine's made this statement. If you're the decider of what is true and false, then you're the one that you're trusting. Now, I bring up this idea because uh, we're going through a series that is talking about God's glory being revealed in mercy through judgment. Two realities, mercy, judgment. If you accept one and reject the other, whichever one it is, Is it God that we're really believing and embracing, or is it just ourselves? The the passage that has been been central in the midst of this series is Exodus 34, and so I'm going to read from it again. And in Exodus 34, God, God is saying he is revealing his glory to Moses. This is his glory. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Mercy and judgment they're essential, both of them, together. Not, it's not essential because we say so. It's not essential because we say it makes the most sense to us, but because God has revealed this to be the case. And I would say that if we are individuals who have been saved by God's immeasurable grace and reconciled to him, then, then we ought to want to know God's glory, right? That we want to know more of this God. So, As we move into today's text that we're looking at, this truth of mercy and judgment still remain. We've gone through various passages in the Old Testament to see mercy and judgment go together. We've then spent the last couple of weeks to see how Jesus communicates mercy and judgment in the Gospels. And now we're moving into the book of Revelation and we're going to see how Jesus communicates the judgment of God and the mercy of God. This morning, we're gazing into Revelation 19, the passage that Scott just read a little bit earlier. And, and what we see is John, the apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he describes Jesus not only by what Jesus is doing, but as I mentioned at the beginning of this service, he describes Jesus by showing us his names. There's four names that are given of Jesus in this text in Revelation 19. And, and I believe the main idea of the sermon today is the names of Jesus at his second coming display both mercy and judgment. Now, in the text that we're looking at today in Revelation 19, it emphasizes the judgment piece. But what I want to do with this sermon is I want to show how these names, I don't, I don't want to miss the rest of the scripture that has come before all of this. Okay, so, so think of like a coin. If you have a coin, there's how many sides to it? 
too. Okay, good, you're still listening. And, and that coin, it doesn't matter what side of the coin it is, it's one coin, right? And so I want us to think about the names of Jesus like two sides of the coin. There's mercy and judgment that are communicated by these names throughout the scripture. So we're looking at Revelation 19, and if you have your Bibles, please feel free to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some out in the gathering center if you want to get that, or there are people around you who'd be very willing to share. But Revelation 19, I'm going to read again verses 11 through 16. Notice the names that are given to Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The glory of Jesus will be on display when he comes. Now here, what we have just read is referred to by many as the Battle of Armageddon. It's a great battle that's yet to come, I believe, when Jesus returns with all who has been saved by him, all who have been forgiven by him, and then he brings in his kingdom. It's the final battle where all who don't trust in Jesus will rebelliously seek to fight against him. Now, as the Apostle John is describing this battle, again, he seeks to describe Jesus so that we can understand the gloriousness of Jesus. And so he shares these four names, each name intended to show us an aspect of his glory. So we have that in this text. And then, like I said earlier, I want to take these names and go to even other portions of Scripture to show the two sides of the coin, mercy and judgment that we see here. And I hope that for all of us, that if, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you'll be drawn closer to him and you will have greater awe of him as a result of looking at this, and that if you haven't trusted in Christ, that God would grab your attention and draw you closer to him as well. So we start off with the first name that's given, and that's faithful and true. Now, if I just use the phrase, Jesus is faithful, or Jesus is faithful and true, is there a passage of scripture that comes up into your mind that's outside of Revelation? Just try to think of a passage that comes up to you. I'll tell you what came up in my mind when I thought of faithful or faithful and true. It was 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know that it doesn't say faithful and true, but obviously Jesus' justice is based in truth. And there's, a, there's another connection with even this passage in Revelation with, with another word in this verse. But I have faithful. What, what, why do we love that verse so much? I mean, we know the answer, right? 
if, if we go to God recognizing our own sinfulness and agreeing with him about it and go to him in our weakness, the verse actually says God is faithful to forgive us. His faithfulness means he forgives you. He, he, he not only forgives you, but he cleanses you from the unrighteousness. That is astounding, right? The God who has made all, who is holy, 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 says, I will be faithful to forgive you. And it doesn't just say faithful, it says just. It's justice of God to forgive those who have come to him. How is it justice? It's justice because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came to this earth and lived the life we could never live and died in the place of sinners. So when he died in the place of sinners, all who come to Christ on the basis of him are forgiven. It would be unjust. Do you hear this? It would be unjust of God to forgive you if you have come to him for forgiveness because Jesus satisfied, Jesus satisfied the justice of God. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Do you see mercy in that? Faithful and just. This is the faithful one. The faithful one. Faithful and just to forgive. But what, what is he faithful to? And what is God faithful to? Is God, is God just simply faithful to us or is there something greater? I would actually say in that text, he's to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that God has a commitment to his righteousness, to himself, right? As you read 1 John, and as we've even studied 1 John this past year, God's goal and intention is to make us more like him, that we would image forth him, which is glorious, right? Because God is the supreme glory. And so to, to, through our unique personalities and differences, we can image him forth, that's a grace and mercy of God. Would you say that you love the idea of his faithfulness? Christian, I just want to see heads nods. Would you love the idea of his faithfulness? Yes. <laughs> I love it. Now let's flip this coin and see the other side of what Revelation 19 says about the faithful one. What we see in Revelation 19 is that Jesus is faithful to God's righteousness, right? We know this because in the next phrase, in righteousness, what does it say next? In righteousness, he what? Judges and what? Makes war. So what we see like in 1 John, for example, in faithfulness, he forgives. And in faithfulness, he judges and makes war. Those are very different things, aren't they? Kind of, right? In faithfulness, he forgives. In faithfulness, he makes wars. And what we clearly see is that Jesus' future return, when he comes again, is very different from the first coming. When he first came, he took the lowest position. No one perceived him to be the one in power. But when Jesus comes again, there's going to be no doubt who he is. Because he's faithful and true to righteousness, he's going to come back in power. Now, the text indicates here that a great war is going to exist that's going to end all wars and bring in all peace. It's a very intense picture. Would you agree? But when I think about this scene from Revelation 19, there is one picture I get from a movie that comes into my mind. If you've ever, if you've ever seen the movies... Um, uh, or the movie, the, the Two Towers from The Lord of the Rings. Um, 
So much of that movie is just, you know, people dying in a battle. And it's dark, and it's horrible, and they're going to lose, and what's going on, and is there any hope? Any of you, how many of you have seen that, that movie? How many of you read the books, by the way? Just, oh my goodness, you're amazing. The perseverance you have is phenomenal. Um, so I just watch the movies. So, but in that movie, you know the scene, if you've seen it. You know this scene. It's all dark. It's all dark. And then light comes out from the side. And when that light comes in, you have the character Gandalf who shows up. And you don't even have to see the rest of the battle. You know. Those guys are losing. And the humans, they're getting rescue. They're going to be saved. Yes! And it's a gruesome, intense battle. But Gandalf is going to win. Now, that's the picture I get in my mind when I think of this battle of Armageddon. But this battle of Jesus coming in is so much greater, obviously, than what, what even Tolkien could try to verbalize in his story. Because here are people who come behind Christ, individuals like us, who we have been hurt, tired, afflicted, traumatized, abused in this life. And Jesus is coming to put an end to all unrighteousness. All injustice. See, not only is Jesus faithful to forgive and cleanse individuals from all unrighteousness, Jesus is faithful to cleanse creation from all unrighteousness so that the righteous will live in a righteous world. Jesus will not allow then he will not allow unrighteousness and treason to continue indefinitely in a new creation. Now, for those of us who are his followers, we should take great comfort in that. We should take great comfort in that. Think about it. We live in a world where we read about wars continuing, or even the war with Russia and Ukraine, and the pain that that brings. We read about the rise of, and the continued rise of sex trafficking and human trafficking that makes, that should sicken us and cause us to weep for people. We see what people are wanting to do to make laws in our own country which destroy life instead of support and help life. We, we see stock market uh, continue to go downward. I mean, just, we live in this world. Pick a problem. It exists, Right? Injustice abounds. But Christian, follower of Jesus, listen, we have hope, right? Because our hope is not anchored in this world. Our hope is not anchored in what people around us do. Our hope is anchored in Jesus Christ, who reigns in heaven, yes? Our rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns today and is coming again, and he is going to remove all injustice to wipe it out and bring peace. So what we see is this faithful and true one coming on a white horse. That's the picture John gives us. Now, the white horse actually is a symbol of victory. Imagine Jesus' return to earth. On that day, Revelation says there's people on earth living in sin. Jesus appears on the white horse to show that he has all power to defeat Without 
a stroke of a sword or the shot of a gun, Jesus wins. The, the appearance on the white horse is he's won. You can't do anything against him. He comes as the God-man warrior king to take over a world that's been ravaged by sin. And that begins the scene of the war. The faithful and true one. That's the first. First name that's given here. Then we have a name that no creation knows. To me, this is actually probably one of the most beautiful uh, names to me in this list here. The name that no creation knows. And, and it's, it's astounding because no creation knows that, by the way, uh, signifies Jesus is not part of creation. He's God. So Jesus is God, and no creation knows this. This kind of reminds me of, of Jesus' prayer in John 17, where in his prayer he says that this is eternal life, that they may know you and they may know your son. It's eternal there's an eternal knowing, a needing to know, because we're always limited. We can't have the full awareness. Did you know, did you know, Christian, anybody, there is not boredom in heaven? Did you know that? Because God is so astounding, so amazing, so glorious, we will only ever always be seeing more of his amazingness and his majesty a name that no creation knows. I don't know, but I know he is great. He is glorious. He is beyond our comprehension. And so this name is revealed in certain ways. John goes on in verse 12 and says, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. You see two things about him. His name is revealed through the many diadems, the, the many crowns that is on him. No king of this earth has ever had the authority that Jesus has had. The beauty and majesty of, of his authority are uniquely his. He is the king of kings. And then the second thing, it says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. What does that mean? I remember when I was younger, a time where I lied to my parents. I know. I know none of you had, but I did. And I lied, I lied to my parents, and I was, I was getting caught by my mom. I mean, I remember where I was standing, walking in from the garage. Then my mom is asking me questions, and she's leading me into her trap, you know? <laughs> And she's asking the questions, well, I talked to so-and-so, and then there was this, and then, and then. So did you lie? I mean, I'm caught red-handed. Me, looking at my mom. My dad's over there, by the way. And I say, yes, I lied. And at that moment, my dad's face jerked over, stared at me, and his eyes bored into my soul. <laughs> I did not know that he had superhero powers. But I'm, I could feel feel this coming inside of me. Any of you with loving parents ever have that sense? Ever feel that before by the stare of a parent? It is terrifying, right? It was as though my dad's eyes were like a flame of fire. But that's just a couple seconds. 
And that's coming from another human being in creation who is imperfect, staring at me. Imagine, imagine what it would be like to have the one who is uncreated creator bore into your soul and stare into you. What must that be like? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he is the king. He has the many diadems. One gaze, one gaze, he sees all and knows all. Because in that moment when Jesus returns, he's going to inflict the punishment that we deserve. Not a punishment that's undeserved, but a punishment that is deserved. And what we see by him coming on the white horse, there's no possible hope for any of those human beings to win against him. We only find life in him, not against him. Look at the way John describes this world. In case you're wondering if this world is, you know, full of all the innocent individuals who really do want him, look at verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Jesus comes to judge the world and seize a world that's totally against him. These people are so deceived that they're willing to follow in Satan's plan. And the reality is that their doom is sure. So listen, listen carefully. If you are someone who hasn't trusted in Christ, I pray that you would consider Christ. Not just, not just to be spared from this, but that you would turn to Jesus from your sinfulness and your self-trust and turn to him for trust because in him is joy forever. Why reject God and embrace death? Why harden your heart like the people of the earth are going to do? If you're sitting here today angry at God for what he might do, you're doing what those people did or what they're going to do someday when he returns. But as I've said in so many weeks past, you can't reject life and have life. Jesus is life. He is life. Life. He doesn't just possess life. He is. And if you would turn to him, you would find forgiveness and grace, like what I just mentioned earlier in 1 John. This is the battle scene. So far, two names, faithful and true, and a name no creation knows. And then we move on to the word of God. This name actually is only ever mentioned by the Apostle John. So the Apostle John is the only one to mention the word of God as the name of Jesus. In verse 15, we find that there's a sharp sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. And that's signifying the power of the word to cut and pierce unrighteousness. Jesus, the living word, does this by, by his own voice. Now when you hear, let's take the coin out again and do the two sides. When you hear word as a name of Jesus, Jesus is the word. For those of you maybe who have read the Bible a lot, what is a chapter you think of immediately when you hear Jesus is the word? John 1. Okay. John 1 is the passage. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then the Apostle John moves on to show that that this word is also light. And his light brings life to human beings. The, The light 
enters into the darkness of our souls and brings light and life into the souls of human beings, reconciling them to God. What John the Apostle is doing is he's making a connection with Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created. And what's the first thing that we're told God says? Let there be light, right? And so that light brought life. So then there's a new creation that's happened. And in this new creation, the first word to come about is Jesus. And Jesus is the light and his light brings life. Are you following me here? Following John? That Jesus' light brings life. Now tell me, is that mercy? Is that mercy? What other, what other religion even talks about a God condescending and coming down to this earth and sacrificing everything to show love and grace to human beings? There is no other religion like this. Jesus comes to give forgiveness. We who have rebelled to give forgiveness and grace and reconciliation with God. And now we get to verse 14. And in verse 14 of uh, John 1, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This whole series has been about the glory of God, right? We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of, if you know this verse, what's the rest? Full of what? Grace and truth. Which I mentioned last week is, is it's almost like shorthand of Exodus 34. Mercy and judgment. Grace and truth. This is the glory of God. We see the mercy in the written or the physical word of God coming to give life and, and light. This personal word of God also will never be content with a new creation that is filled with sinfulness. With his light and life. He will never be content with a new creation that is full of sinfulness. And we see this, verse 13 says, he was clothed in a robe dipped with blood. And then skip to verse four, or 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You look at verse 13 and you say, his robe is dipped in blood. What, what does that even mean? And what's that referring to? And then you get to verse 15, and 15 is giving this illustration of treading a winepress. Um, I don't know, I, I doubt anybody here is has treaded a wine press, but maybe somebody has. But you've, but maybe maybe if in back in the day you watched the I Love Lucy episode where she had you know was there and treading, you 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 know kind of the idea, right? And so you go into this wine press and you stomp on the grapes, right? And what happens to the grapes? The juice comes out, right? And then what happens to you and your clothes? It gets onto you, right? Because you're stomping on the grapes and it gets stained. This. This, to me, is a terrifying picture. I just want you to let this sink in. He's treading the winepress of God's wrath, which wrath is just judgment. 
of God and his just anger towards sin. Jesus is treading it. Who is he treading on? It's the people on the earth who are rebellious against him. Then whose blood does he have? It's those people. It's those who have rebelled against him and who who have stood on the earth ready to war and fight against him. But with the word of his mouth, all he has to say is death. And he's victorious. All who refuse to submit to the Lord and to his righteousness. Now, in this series, we also went through the book of Psalms to see God's mercy and judgment. And I went to Psalm chapter 2, and I think Revelation 19 gives us the picture of what David writes in the end of Psalm 2 when he says, Kiss the son, lest what? He become angry, and you perish in the way. And kiss the son means you bow to him. You say, you're... You're the one I need because then the verse goes on. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Don't live rejecting Jesus because there is mercy in Jesus. And even like what the apostle James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen to what what will happen to those who reject and refuse. But also listen and see that God's heart and intention is to bring forgiveness and grace and mercy to those who would turn him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. If this description of Jesus tempts you to reject Jesus, I just actually want to ask you to consider two things. First is, just what I said earlier. You can't reject life and have it. Secondly, I hope you know what the scriptures say, that God has delayed the return of Jesus because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all might turn to him. And so again, if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, that you would see the kindness of God in warning you and also in calling you. Now, there's something else, by the way, that I want to add to the gloriousness of the name, the word of God. I've taken the other side of the coin first, the judgment piece. I want to turn it over to the the mercy piece. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You notice something about this war? I believe actually the armies of heaven here in this text is actually referring to all who trusted in Christ and follow after him. They're in white linen following after Jesus Christ, which is his righteousness. You see, the kings and the nations on the earth, if you get this picture of the war in mind, you have the earth down here, the kings and the nations are here, Jesus is coming on the white horse, you have myriads of horses, people on the horses, those of us who have been saved by Christ and by his grace and mercy, we're on the horses. Jesus is the one that out of his mouth he speaks, the sword comes, Jesus treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. But let me ask you something, do we do anything in this? Do you see anything about us like, and then... Timothy Dury jumped in front of Jesus and wah! And they won! Whoa! No! We're just onlookers, right? 
We're clothed in white, not because of righteousness that we have inherently. We're victorious on white horses, not because of the victory we've obtained. It's all Jesus. He is the warrior that comes down and wins and and brings in his faithfulness to bring peace to this new creation and this kingdom to come. That's amazing, right? Jesus is the victorious one. By his power, the name no creation knows reveals the beauty and splendor and majesty of God. The word of God brings life and pierces so that there can be life and light in this new creation. The final name that we have is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Verse 16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm reminded when I think about this phrase, I'm reminded of Philippians 2. And Philippians 2 talks about when Jesus came to this earth for the first time and how he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And in humbling himself to the point of death on the cross, then he died and then he rose from the dead. And then the psalm goes on and it says he's resurrected so that, so that at the name of Jesus someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, that's the name. That as the God-man, he is Lord. The Bible teaches us that someday when Jesus comes again, not only every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but also when Jesus judges, every mouth is going to be stopped. No one is going to say Jesus was wrong in his judgment. He's the king of kings. No nation could win against him. And he is the Lord of Lords, which I just want to put it in another way. Lord of Lords could also be translated Master of Masters. That word Lord can be translated Master. And I don't think we tend to want to think Master because um, slavery, right? And slavery, slavery's bad. And, 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 and I agree. And the reason why is because there's only one Master we were ever created for. Did you know that? Anything else that we live for in this world wants to, we let it master us or it wants to master us. Money, power, uh, approval of people, uh, sex, food, whatever it is. And any of those types of masters in our lives, their message to us, if we really listen to it, is give your life to me. Give your life to me. Die for me. Jesus is the only master that says, give your life to me, I'll die for you. I've already died for you. He's the master of masters, that in his mastery there's freedom, there's life, there's hope. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's bringing victory to all who trust in him. He is bringing the new creation. I hope you can see mercy and judgment in Jesus' names. But not only that you can see it, but I, I just ask you, have you trusted him? After this service, there's going to be people up here. And we, we would love to talk to you if you have more questions about Jesus following after him. Also, by the way, for anyone, if you just need someone to pray for you and with you, it doesn't have to be about the sermon but we're up here. The names of Jesus 
at his second coming, display both his mercy and judgment. And I pray we see each other in the crowd of followers on white horses following him. Now, isn't that going to be a day that I can look and I can say, Aaron, Aaron, yeah! Right? Are we excited for this? Do you look forward to being with him? Kiss the sun. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Embrace the reality of both. Don't pick and choose. Both is his glory. In just a moment, we're going to sing Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. See the mercy and grace and praise him, church. We're going to continue to sing and worship our God. So let's pray. God, thank you. Hallowed be your name. May your glory be reverenced in our hearts. That we would love the one who is merciful and just. We know what we deserve, Lord, but we know what we have been given. And so let the astounding realities of who you are truly astound us all the more. Lead us to zeal and passion and rest in who you are. And Father, for any who do not trust Jesus and rest in him, please open their eyes to see wonderful realities about you. And may they find the hope that they were created for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Caitlin, for leading the children in that and for kids, for singing and leading us in worship. I want you all to stand with me, hear these words of encouragement and blessing. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.